Herzlich Willkommen zum Modellansatz, der mathematische Podcast aus Karlsruhe mit Gudrun Täter und Sebastian Ritterbusch. Today I welcome Anna Geier from the Technical University in Delft in my office. I had the pleasure of attending a lecture of hers about um, instabilities of peaked waves. And um, I asked her to take an hour while she's here in Karlsruhe to talk about this topic with me. So welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, from which um, background um, do you find it interesting to consider waves like you presented yesterday which have this um, kind of shape which is repeated over and over so like a parabola form mm -hmm. and then they touch each other in a way that there is a peak where they touch yeah well i mean there are um, they are special in the sense that they are not uh, smooth solutions and well a lot of uh, of of There are some sort of extreme cases of, of waves which which are always interesting in itself because they they show where where things you know it gets interesting where where it's some sort of boundary behavior or, or something. It's also at, um, at the interface between uh, when waves may break or or when you know things become singular in some sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, I mean wave. Which waves which are periodic and have this uh, repeated structure, um, those are well known and they, they are also observed uh, in nature. I mean, you can watch waves on the ocean and very often you see this, these profiles which are very homogeneous in one direction and all the action is actually only along the mm -hmm. other direction perpendicular to it. So, so as long as the profiles are smooth, these are uh, well known and, and observable. And for the peaks... First of all, there are not so many model equations that um, can describe them. So we know that the, the equations which govern fluid dynamics, Euler's equations, so, so for water waves, for inviscid fluids, uh, there was a long-standing conjecture that these peaked waves um, uh, exist for, for the Euler equations. This was due to Stokes, mm -hmm. Stokes' greatest height, waves of greatest height. And then, of course, okay, it took a while to prove it, almost a hundred years to, to prove that. And so now when you are working with model equations, which kind of approximate the underlying governing equations, you also want to have them capture as many features as possible of the original equations. And those peaked waves would then be one of those features. And so the simplest, let's say, okay, if you're doing only linear model equations, That uh, will not work. And if you go to nonlinear mm -hmm. model equations, the simplest ones can also not describe it. So you have to kind of um, work a little harder to, to, first of all, find models that can capture that and then uh, try to study it. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, of course... Um Linear behavior is not enough, that's clear. But if you start allowing nonlinear behavior, <clears throat> then you have all kinds of problems understanding them. And so you have to kind of find something which is nonlinear, but not too nonlinear. Exactly. It's <laughs> still doable. Yeah, yeah. So, so for instance, so one well-known uh, model equation where one found these peaked waves also explicitly, so it's a sort of exponential absolute value of, of x kind of peak. This is the Kamasa-Holm equation. Mm -hmm. 
And the equation is quite hard, I would say. I mean, now a lot of people have studied a lot of things about it, but um, it's it's a very beautiful equation with a lot of rich structure, and it also has these peak waves. And then uh, quite, well, let's say, it, when was that? Almost 20 years ago, a proof about stability of these peaked waves came about. And so then from then on, okay, so these peaked waves, they are stable, right? So th th that means also we should see them. We should see them in the ocean if they're if they're stable. Mm -hmm. But usually, when I talk to uh, you know maybe more like engineers or, or coastal engineers or something, they don't really <laughs> recognize that they don't they don't really see that. So now it was interesting for me to work on an equation which is different than the Kamasaholm. In some sense, maybe even a little simpler from the structural point of view, and to show that these peaks are not stable mm -hmm. for this equation. So. So I think that was. Uh, I think it's interesting to see that it's very fine line, and depends on uh, on the spaces also where you look at uh, if it's really unstable or not. Mm. Yeah, because in the mathematical sense, um, stable is always connected to the problem as a whole. So you have the equation, and you have to say in which sense you want the equation to hold, mm -hmm. which you explained as the spaces. Mm -hmm. So kind of. If I'm really looking for an, uh, for a solution which point-wise fulfills the equation or just in any kind of weak sense, mm -hmm. as we do so often. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, especially stability as such uh, has so many different meanings. Mm -hmm. Of course, it yes. always means that somehow um, things stay bounded. Yeah. And you change a little bit and then things should stay bounded. That's kind of the meaning of all stability notions. But um, if you really want to go into details and do this mathematically correct, we have like, I don't know, at least 10 or 12 different <laughs> stability notions. Of stability, yes, yeah. yes. And this has all good reasons because mm -hmm. the behavior is so intricate to study. And uh, of course, for physicists, the only thing which is really the interesting one is to know they are observable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a behavior which is really not prone to be um, deleted by small changes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, some, somehow the question is, how far do you need to go mathematically <laughs> in yeah. order to ensure that it's really observable? Yeah. But of course, um, if we um, start with observations which we can do in everyday life, if you just put some stone into water, mm -hmm. then you have the ring of waves, which you could consider as smooth waves mm -hmm. in the sense at which we were talking about the peak waves, mm -hmm. because in a way, so you know. I think they will die down, but at the first moment they look like periodically mm -hmm. repeating in the radial directions, all of them. But especially if you're, for example, sitting at the beach and see the waves coming, then you really see them breaking. Mm -hmm. So you don't really have the smooth behavior. And this peak behavior is somehow in the middle of a smoothing becoming um, steep enough mm -hmm. for breaking. So yes. if you go from the physical point of view or the observation in your head... Yeah, exactly. So, so that's why, um, also, that's why it's interesting to see if this. Well, if the peak is stable, that would mean, in some sense, even if you perturb it a little bit, it shouldn't break. Yeah, it would. It it, it, it should peak, stay. Yeah. Or it, that means if if you perturb it, so that means you it gets goes away a little bit from the peak form. Then, it, but then it would return to it, or mm -hmm. it would stay close to this peak shape. Shape. Then, of course, if I show a result where I prove that something is unstable, 
it means that if I perturb it a little bit, it will change. And then the question is, how will it change? Yeah, will it break or will it exactly. get smooth? Yeah. And so, as I mentioned yesterday, there are some analytical results available for smooth waves, so which are not peak, but will have a nice round shape uh, around the crest, where either you predict that the solution will um, exist for all times, or you can predict that it will break at some time. So the, the derivative becomes infinite, and that's what we call wave breaking. And for the peaked wave, if you check this condition, it doesn't give you a result. It's just identically zero. It doesn't tell you mm. anything. So I'm very curious and intrigued to, to find out whether <clears throat> this instability leads to what I would think dispersion. So in a sense, it, the, whether it's uh, breaking or will exist for all times, it's a play between uh, the dispersion part of the equation and the nonlinearity part. The nonlinearity causes waves to, uh, to steepen, so to kind of localize even more. And at some point they would break. You can, the simplest example to think of is Burgess equation. So mm -hmm. that probably every PDE class, uh, every student has come across at some point <laughs> and <laughs> then the, the counterpart of that is, is the dispersive yeah. uh, effect which makes the uh, waves die out as you just described with the ripples mm -hmm. in, in, in a pond so the question is a little bit in this equation um, which of the two is stronger and so then a perturbation which causes the peaks to well to become unstable will it steepen even more so that the derivative becomes infinite that would turn into a cusp maybe, uh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, or will it disperse and kind of smoothen out? And it's very hard to um, get an intuition for that. I mean, usually what you, or some, some ideas is to run some numerics, for instance, and to see, uh, well, what does the numerics predict? And the problem as far as, so I'm not an expert in numerics, but as far as I understood is that in order to model such a peaked wave, I mean, the numerics itself to, to discretize in space and time, you introduce some sort of dispersion. So, so you introduce a rounding off of yeah. the edges, otherwise your code doesn't run. So in some sense, you have to uh, distinguish between the dispersion from the numerics introduced by the numerics and the one which really comes from the equation so that you then, when you interpret this numerical uh, result, um, don't make a wrong conclusion. Yeah. Now the thing is that since numerics is always with small errors, that's kind of, you can't avoid that. Mm -hmm. um, you have to stabilize the numerical scheme mm -hmm. and one possibility to introduce dispersion into the scheme that the small errors don't grow um, without any sense. You know, if the solution has this behavior, then it makes sense. But if it's only because of rounding yes. up of errors, then of course it's nonsensical, gives mm -hmm. wrong results. And to, you ha really have to keep both things that's, um, different from each other. It's not so clear how to do that. Yeah, but I've heard there are some people who, yeah. <laughs> who know how to do it. So yeah. I will go talk to them. Yes, they are on the cusp <laughs> of research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, a kind of the which went through my head yesterday is that also with this peak. So you have like the derivative from the right and the derivative coming from the left. Mm -hmm. um, they have finite values. Mm -hmm. And that this is kind of so nice first step of not being smooth, mm -hmm. but not having the behavior like a cusp mm -hmm. where uh, they touch each other and go asymptotically into one line. Mm -hmm. 
where everything, so all the derivatives go to infinity, the nearer they come to each other, which is, you know, gives a lot of uh, more structure, but also more problems. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So the problem in that sense is that um, they are less regular. Yeah. So the spaces much less regular. <laughs> much less regular. <laughs> and so the the spaces in which your equation or, or the solution is then uh, um, um, yeah makes sense uh, need to be lower, so yeah. lower regularity. And then sometimes the equation is not well posed anymore in these spaces. Well, okay, that can happen already with the peaks, but. Um, and as we could show, for instance, for this equation that I described yesterday, the Ostrovsky equation, there are actually no not solutions. So there's no space in which I can make sense of them, e even in a weak sense. Mm. If you go below, so the peak solutions, they there you can show that it's Lipschitz. You can prove um, explicitly write down the Lipschitz bounds and ex exact Lipschitz bounds. Uh, but if you want go below, like Hölder continuous solutions, they just uh, They're not weak solutions of this mm. equation. But other for other equations, this is possible. So, for instance, the Gamasa-Holm equation that I mentioned earlier, uh, here you can also have these cusped um, mm. Yeah. So, for me, this was kind of an interesting reminder. Um, I'm working myself in fluid dynamics. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's always this question... Um, so, of course, we have this one open questions that we really don't know if our weak solutions are strong enough to be pointwise solutions in three dimensions. But also, if you consider domains in which you consider the flow, um, so Vesipschitz domains as your peak, mm -hmm. uh, you have kind of, um, depending on the boundary condition, are still kind of safe. Mm -hmm. And there's also the three over two. Mm -hmm. as the space which is kind of um, below that everything gets missed kind of not so nice and above that everything is kind of fine mm -hmm. so even presentable to students kind of and um, uh, when you allow for non-Lipschitz behavior and cusps are one example for that or you make just only a cut through a domain which is also non-Lipschitz mm -hmm. then things get messy as hell you can even prove that there is no solution at all Yeah, and so this was the first time after maybe like five or six years <laughs> I was remembered the once upon a time I was thinking about these type of problems. <laughs> and they return uh, just in a, different, um, in a different frame. Yes, so it seems like everybody runs into the same type of problems sooner or later, yeah. no matter which equations are that you study. So uh, when you try to um, understand if the waves you consider or the peaked waves or the smooth waves or waves with, which mm -hmm. touch with cusps uh, are stable or unstable, what kind of um, tools can you use mathematically just um, to get a rough idea? Yeah, so... Okay, so in some sense, um, for in, it's, it's quite different if you want to prove stability or instability. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, instability is easier than stability because for instability, um, you need to show that, let's say, for instance, if you just start with linear instability, that just means that the perturbation around the solution that you're interested in. So let's say you have a, a peaked wave and you perturb it by a small, with a small function that you assume it's initially small. You want to show that as time evolves, this perturbation remains small. And if you want to show that it's 
unstable, you want to show that it doesn't remain small, so that there's some growth in time. So that means that you have, you, you compute the norm of the solution you, and you check over time if you have growth, exponential growth or mm -hmm. something like that. So for our case, for instance, we use the method of characteristics to actually compute along characteristic lines explicitly how the solution mm -hmm. uh, behaves and then you can just estimate the norm. So that's quite a direct uh, kind of calculation. Yeah. So the characteristics are kind of um, taking the evolution of the equation uh, for, for each start point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of sit on your... Uh, I wanted to say particle because I'm in the streaming business. Yeah, but you kind of sit on your um, point in the development of your shallow wave equation or whatever mm -hmm. and follow it. Um, and that's called the characteristic, the movement of this point. Yeah. And it's kind of um, possible to do uh, because you have a form that the change over time of your process is something equal to. Exactly. And so the, the equation has to be written in an appropriate sense in mm. evolution form yeah. where you have, let's say, your perturbation is U or something like this. Then you have UT, mm. a time derivative which describes the evolution. And on the right-hand side of the equation, you have yeah. usually some X... Um, partial derivatives in, in X, which describe how in space things evolve. Yeah. And then not kind of the delicate thing to do is to find the right norm. So in which space you really observe this behavior that it's yes. growing. Yes. So there are uh, examples that I also briefly mentioned yesterday where, um, for instance, in one norm, you can show stability. And if you move, okay, when I say norm, I mean, in which mo norm do you measure the perturbations? Yeah. In which norm do you measure how big yeah. uh, the perturbation is? And in another norm, um, you actually get instability. So, and to interpret that physically, for instance, I find that very challenging. And, yeah. and, and uh, so I have to say this reaches the boundary of <laughs> where I feel uh, yeah. uh, like an expert. So Yeah, because the physicist would look at you and ask you, What's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> I said it's stable or unstable. Exactly. Well, how can it depend on the norm? Yeah. Or let's say, probably they would say, well, if there is any norm in which it's unstable, then it's unstable. unstable. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but for example, just to get an idea, um, if it's not really growing as a function, uh, for example, uh, measured in a certain power, one, two, three, integral over um, your domain in which you consider your flow. Mm -hmm. Um, and this stays bounded, then a different would be if you also consider the first derivative. And then surprisingly, the derivative does crazy things mm -hmm. because somehow you would expect um, um, if things get kind of bounded enough, then the derivative, there's no space for it to mm -hmm. make stupid yeah, things. Yeah, no, but that's not the case. Yeah, so, yeah. so as we were talking about uh, the peaks being in between breaking and global yeah. solutions, so for instance, breaking, what, what that means is exactly... Uh, that you have some sort of blow up that that's what it's called when blow up meaning that um, you let time evolve and at some point your solution stops being a solution it breaks down when you when you hit a certain time mm -hmm. but in what way and what the typical way would be that the solution itself in some norm goes to infinity but another option is that the let's say l2 norm of the of the solution stays bounded but the derivative becomes up unbounded and this is when we speak of of wave breaking yeah so the, the derivative can do unexpected things uh even though your pro profile looks bounded and nice yeah. yeah 
so just uh, for people who are usually don't use norm all, all okay. day. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because in a way that's just hiding what kind of things we measure, yes, yes. Uh, in mm -hmm. the norm. So um, this um, was kind of the part where we say to prove instability is at least easier than to show stability. Um, you almost sounded as it would be easy. <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> it's not. not <laughs> yeah. No, And so what um, on the stability yeah. side? Mm -hmm. Okay, so for the stability side, uh, what, what um, a, 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 a typical tool to use are Lyapunov functions, which probably in its simplest forms is also something that you are presented to in maybe an ODE or PDE class mm. uh, um, where... Uh, well, you have a PDE and you have a, a functional, and if you can show that the solution, um, uh, that the functional decreases along a solution, and that the, the solution is then described as a minimum of this functional, it's kind of you can visualize it's like a parabola, where the solution is like a little ball down in the uh, below, and it cannot go out, right? It's kind of trapped. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, it cannot escape, and therefore, uh, you can think of it as a stable equilibrium or a stable solution. Mm -hmm. So some variant of that can also be used uh, for more complicated nonlinear PDEs. Um, so then generalized Lyapunov methods or whatever the name is. So you're, you usually look for some uh, conserved quantities, so, so some functionals which uh, do not change over time uh, along those solutions. And with those, you can construct such a Lyapunov functional, and if you're lucky, your solution is then a minimizer of this functional. Sometimes uh, it's not, or usually it's not, uh, and you need to impose some restrictions. Um, and so, for instance, you can show that there is uh, some unstable direction still, but you can exclude that by some other argument, for instance. Um, Yeah, saying that uh, some other quantity is conserved, the momentum or mm. or whatever, and then you can say, well, actually, in this direction, nothing will ever move, so we can kind of forget about it, and it's essentially uh, a minimum if you look in the right subspace. Yeah. So in a way, these kind of um, tools are prepared in in a good ODE class where you do do the so-called qualitative um, studies. Because then you can also consider your partial differential equations as being like an evolutionary system. Mm -hmm. And if you are able to treat the right-hand side of that as you would have treated um, right-hand sides of ordinary differential equations, mm -hmm. you know, of course, always in a kind of generalized sense, but um, with the same ideas, yes. uh, then you can harvest from that. And it's actually nice that the basic concept uh, can... You are, you are already aware of it for quite a long time, so so it's easier to, uh, yeah, grow your theory and your intuition from, yeah. from that. Yeah, because this also kind of helps to get an intuition, mm -hmm. even if sometimes it's the wrong one, but still, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not so abstract. Yeah. Also, there's always this fascinating interplay in finding um, eigenvalues for the operators on the right-hand side and then uh, understanding that the sign of the real part of that is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, also there, I think the, the essential uh, part of it you learn already quite early in your studies, mm -hmm. I mean, also in ODE class, right? If you just have a linear ODE, 
uh, or then later on, if you look at a linear a matrix equation or something, yeah. the solution of that will be, you know, some e to the power a times t or whatever it is, and the, the a depending on the sign, the thing will grow exponentially or will decay exponentially. And if it's a matrix, then it's the the a is the eigenvalue, and so again, uh, the the sign of the eigenvalues tell you if if things grow or if things decay or in or in looking uh, from the stability point of view if things are stable or unstable yeah. and so if you don't have a matrix or if you don't which is something linear usually when we talk about uh, these wave equations they're non-linear well then still you can say locally i will linearize my operator and i look at its eigenvalues and uh, if my real part is is not positive but negative then uh, I, I have a decay, so, so I, I get something stable. Yeah. And that's at least for the so-called linear stability as a first step helps. Yes. Yeah. Um, of course, the underlying assumption is that um, if you make the small, so you stay near to your, the solution you want to study, then the nonlinear behavior cannot be so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, not that important that it destroys all these properties. Yes. Um, or as we have seen sometimes in some cases, it can also be, well, that's, but that's quite exceptional that you have, that linearly things are unstable and mm -hmm. the, the nonlinearity actually saves you yeah, and you're back to happen. stable. But that's, I think it's just very good to keep that in mind that, uh, um, because we tend to always think that nonlinearities makes things worse, <laughs> which is usually the case. Uh, but, uh, one has to be always careful. It could also Yeah, save things and 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 make it stable. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, after your fascinating talk yesterday, to me there is no questions why your topic is so interesting to you because it's just fascinating. <laughs> But um, if you start a little bit earlier in your life, um, how and why did you decide to become a mathematician, and what was your idea about mathematics at that moment? Um. I think the fascination started or probably already in school. Mm. Um, I realized that it was the subject that that I always wanted to do the homework first <laughs> because it was... Uh, um, I was a bit disappointed usually with the type of exercises that we had to do in school because they were re repetitive and sometimes um, surprising things, or at least to me surprising things, were written on the board by the teacher, which I wanted an explanation for. And the good thing about mathematics is that usually you can find an explanation and you can find a derivation or you can show uh, that something is true in general. And this is something I, I found very fascinating already as a, yeah, as a, in school. Uh, yeah. a student in school, that there's some sort of generality to it, that it's not subject to interpretation, that there's no arguing, that it's just, you know, you, you, you can prove something and then it's always true i find it very i, I found it back then already very um reassuring somehow in a life where everything changes yeah. you know so yeah I, i think then i decided i i was going to give it a try and, and study mathematics also in some sense at the time i was also uh, i liked uh, programming and and so i was also drawn towards you know computer science but um I don't know, I, it was just a personal choice. I had the feeling that mathematics is something which uh, kind of the foundation of it doesn't change. So it's not subject to 
technological uh, developments which will overthrow i don't know the argument you know the algorithms will yeah. change the, 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 the technology will change so, so mathematics will just keep evolving but the basic principles in my feeling was back then that that, that, that will be reliable and and something which i can build on for the rest of my life um which yeah so this was then the yeah. reason why i studied math was there a reason why you decided to study in vienna well i grew up in a town very 10 minutes away from vienna so that was just a natural um uh choice i i saw no reason to to move abroad already although i i loved traveling already when i was so as soon as I could get away, I was going to travel. So I had the idea that I... Actually, at the end of high school, I already knew I wanted to study mathematics, but I had the feeling that before, like going from one institution directly to the next institution um, was something which is... I, I, uh, I was looking for some sort of development away from this academic style. So I actually left and I spent one year as a volunteer uh, teaching English and uh, in high school in Thailand. So I went to Thailand for well, 10 months or something like that um, uh, to yeah to develop as a person and, and uh, other skills, not just the academic mm. part of it. And then I returned to Vienna and studied there. Yeah. And going into the study course, um, did your idea what mathematics is really about change? <laughs> And of uh, course, it did change. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this is a stupid I... question. But the question is how much more like uh, peak or more like cusp? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think probably in the first month or something, it was more like a cusp. So, or even I think the first week, I was really uh, struggling to keep up. So, I think the difference mostly was that I wasn't used to the pace, you know. Yeah. And this, hap I mean, then you realize that this is happening basically to everyone yeah. that is in the group. But uh, if you study mathematics, you're usually the only person in the class in high school who understood what's going on and it was too slow, right? But then you come to university and, and you feel like faster. it's way too fast and I can't keep up with it yeah. and I don't understand everything. So I think it was more like the getting used to the fact that you don't ever understand everything immediately and how you manage to, you know break it down into little steps and actually uh, take time and not panic <laughs> and go through it slowly and then have patience so that, that uh, things will take time to sink in, but then eventually you will understand them. So mm -hmm. I took at least, so, okay, the first semester, I didn't have particularly good grades, for instance. I, I had to study really hard, and um, but I liked it. So it was a feeling like if I invest and I, I study hard and then I actually learn something and I, I like the puzzle. I like the, you know, ah, you know, now I get it. <laughs> and there was a lot of that because there was a lot of things you don't understand. Yeah. And probably after the first year, uh, things became, um, yeah, I was on top of things. And then from there on it, um, it felt like, yeah, okay, this is the, the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And how did you enter this field of research that you're doing partial differential equations with certain applications? So that I would say had to do with, um, well, okay. So I studied at the University of Vienna, which at least at the time was uh, a very thorough, you know, theoretical, mathematical um, uh, education, uh, not too technical, like not into the technical direction or not 
too applied. And I must say that at some point, like around the third year or so, I started to um, miss some sort of you know, connection with the real world, let's call it, or what does these things that I do here every day have to do with the world and why, why am I doing this? So then I, I, I left for a year to do an Erasmus uh, program just to get also some, you know, other inputs, can mm. meet other people, um, learn other, another language. I learned Spanish, for instance. And then when I came back, um, maybe also with a more open mind or something, I was looking through the curriculum. I mean, then it's also already time to select some courses and you don't have to only do the, the, the main courses. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So then a new professor had arrived at our uh, university uh, who later became my advisor and he offered a course in mathematics of water waves of fluid dynamics. I don't remember the name. And then, uh, okay. And there was another course on biomathematics. Mm. And so I just picked different applications. Um, game theory was another one. So I kind of used the semester to, to get some orientation of what are the pop, you know, possible applications of mathematics. And I actually, I enjoyed all of them. So I, I also like the game theory and the, the biomathematics, but for some reason, uh, the water waves and I think all of them were a little bit, so the PDE part, that I had already liked as a student or even the, the pure mm. <laughs> PD courses. And then when I learned that there was some exciting application, which is, you know, talks about problems that are actually coming from the physical world and where you can apply these mathematical tools to understand them better, then all of a sudden things made sense again. And I, you know, regained um, interest and understood why it makes sense and to dive deep into the mathematics because it actually allows you to to make sense of the world mm. because it gives you some sort of language with which you can describe things that otherwise uh, you wouldn't. Yeah. Also, there is this um, moment when you understand that all these types of equations, you can use them as models. Mm -hmm. And then you have like different models and you can take the model and compare it to reality yes. with the help of your mathematical model. So, for example, how do the solutions look like? Do they look like what you observe if not what would have to be changed and is there maybe just a region where the model is exactly. a good model and things like that and so, you know when you enter mathematics you never look at your equations like that they are just given they're given mm -hmm. yeah and that makes a lot of space in your head if you come across that this is just a tool exactly and it also adds the component which i think is the most essential one of creativity yeah because it gives you the freedom to describe things in a certain way and that's a very creative process so so as you said there are many different models and you kind of tailor them to match a specific situation or a specific phenomenon that you are most interested in because you cannot describe everything at once so you have to kind of zoom in on, a, mm. on one phenomenon and you leave out the other things and you have to do that in a controlled way so you have to kind of provide always measures for how big are the errors that I'm making now in this model. And then I can say, now this is tailored to this situation and it's valid for this time period and this space period. But then I can actually say something about the, the phenomenon. That's very exciting. Yeah. And that's also uh, one of the points where I'm so optimistic about my own profession that we will always have enough open problems. <laughs> yes, as long as the world keeps spinning, yeah. <laughs> we'll have problems. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you very much for the very nice interview. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm.